Hello there. I'm Patrick Struth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the top experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, and that's a clean exit for owners and founders. This week, I'm joined by Patrick Crocker. Pat is a founder and managing director of MHT Partners with offices in San Francisco, Dallas, and Boston. He's advised on numerous transactions during his career in investment banking, both on the sell side and the buy side, as well as numerous strategic advisory assignments. Pat, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Pat, your background is with a lot of other investment bankers is is you know a very solid business background. However, you also have an engineering uh, career in your background. Could you tell me how did you get into investment banking? Well, it's a it's a good question, and I must say I probably backed into it. I uh, I did study engineering in college, got an engineering degree uh, when I was coming out of school. Didn't know what I wanted to do. But one of the banks I interviewed with in New York had previously hired an engineer who had uh, done good work for them. And next thing you know, I had a job offer and was moving to New York City and got started in uh, uh, in the investment banking business over 25 years ago. And with uh, that in the banking, tell me about then what brought you out from New York out west of MHT. Well, I spent three years in New York City working for Chase Manhattan Bank, so a very large money center bank. Came back out west for business school, and after I got out of business school, we're now in the mid-90s, I joined what was a full-service investment bank by the name of Alex Brown. And there we did everything from M&A advisory to taking companies public. Uh, great experience there. Unfortunately, the firm was acquired twice while I was there, uh, and we ended up as part of Deutsche Bank. And as I didn't want to work for another big, dumb bank, I left uh, in the height of the, the first Internet bubble, went to work at a startup, uh, really helping emerging growth companies raise capital on the Internet. That that business worked well until it didn't. Uh, when the, the, the markets corrected in early 2000, that business model uh, really floundered. Uh, I was then fortunate to join a pure play middle market M&A advisory firm by the name of Harris Williams and spent 10 years there, worked with numerous founders, numerous private equity groups and helping them sell their businesses. And so that's where I really got interested in a lot of experience in the middle market M&A arena. Uh, we sold Harris Williams. This is a recurring theme in my career. We sold Harris Williams to uh, PNC Bank, a large bank out of Pittsburgh. Uh, and a few years after that deal closed, a couple of us left to set up our own firm. And so uh, been working with uh, MHT for now. We're seven years in as, as founders. And uh, our focus here has been really working with uh, uh, smaller, mid-sized businesses with a heavy focus on owner-entrepreneurs. For context here, when we talk about middle market, lower middle market, and so forth, give us an idea in terms of transaction value. Yeah, so we think of the lower middle market as being uh, transactions with an enterprise value of, call it, 20 or $25 million on the low end up to $250 million on the higher end. So that's that's really where we focus our time. Uh, we'll certainly go above that range, and for you know uh, for unique situations, we'll be we'll be happy to go below that range as well. 
great. Now, you're an expert in helping owners and founders sell their own businesses. And why is that so important for people to understand about sell-side advisory? Why can't they, if they get a call in, just, you know, go ahead and turn over, you know, get a check and, you know, hand over the keys to somebody who wants to give them money? Yeah, you know, the, the, the best analogy I can think of here is it's it's kind of like selling your house. And you would never sell your house to the first person that walks up and knocks on your door. And uh, it always makes sense to, to get a realtor involved and run a run a proper process to identify the best, most aggressive buyers. And, and that's essentially what we do. Of course, selling a company is a lot more complex than selling a house. Company changes every day. Uh, a house is more static. So all the more reason to, to get an advisor to help you through that process. And the other thing I'd say is it takes an extraordinary amount of work and uh, to try to manage a business, run a business while you're trying to sell it is 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 a job too big for any any person to do. And so getting some help, getting some hands on deck really enables the company and the management team to continue to be focused on the business while your advisor can deal with, you know, due diligence, data rooms and and talking to all the buyers out there. Well I can imagine that the other thing is if for business owners is you know, if they want to sell unless they know somebody in mind immediately, they may have one party in mind, but you know, it always helps having more uh, offers coming in. That's a that's a key thing that you guys can provide, isn't it? Well, creating leverage in a negotiation and creating attractive alternatives, those are really the you know, the key things that we can deliver. And um uh we we have run auction processes with as few as one or two parties or as many as 300 parties. So it really just depends on what the what the owner has in mind and what their goals and objectives are. But certainly one of our key value adds is, is creating leverage to optimize the transaction and its price, but it's not just price, it's price and terms and what's going to happen to the, the employee base and the management team. But then equally importantly is creating enough leverage to keep the buyer honest so they actually close at the price and terms that are agreed on the front end. So we're we're almost like an insurance policy in addition to, you know, being the being the advisor. I can, ima- I can imagine uh, you know, a thousand different things can go wrong as as the process goes on and if if you try to do this as a business owner yourself, you got your eye off the ball cuz you're not running your company and yeah, you're exactly getting involved right. You're getting involved in something that you don't do for a living. So if you're a candy manufacturer and you try to get into an M&A process, you may know candy, but you don't know M&A. And well, that could lead to not, not only just not getting a good price, but I can imagine you could have some disastrous consequences. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, it is it is arguably the most important thing that, uh, you know, that entrepreneur is going to do professionally. It's uh, oftentimes the culmination of a a life's work, or in some cases, several lives work, multi-generational businesses. And, you know, it's, uh, you, you just want to make sure you, you, you get the, get the best deal you can get and really optimize it. Cause there's, there's kind of one shot to do it and you want to do it right. Paint a picture for us. When we hear the term sell side advisory, yes, you're bringing in multiple buyers or multiple interested parties. You're going to structure an offer and, and so forth that attracts as many people that hopefully will bid over, but what other advisory services 
you know, what do they look like on that? Because I can imagine, and to use your analogy with the uh, real estate, because that's something that a lot of us are very familiar with, is that you're almost like you're not just bringing in buyers, but you're helping stage a house uh, or stage a business. And that could take a little bit of time as well. But paint the picture on what that looks like. Yeah, that's a that's a good it is a good analogy and and part of the work we do is up front where we're conducting our own due diligence and this is really, you know, the analogy here would be having house inspections done to identify, you know, do you have a cracked foundation or a leaky roof? You'd like to figure that out in advance and then make the repairs so to speak before you get out in the market. And so we will conduct due diligence. If we find anything troubling, uh, we'll, we'll help the company work through that, uh, hopefully uh, rectify that. We often will uh, encourage the company to conduct a quality of earnings uh, assessment where they bring in an accounting firm to uh, go through the financials and make sure there aren't any surprises there. Um, the culmination of that effort will be the creation of the the confidential information memorandum, which is, uh, you know, the technical term would be the book, uh, which is really a, a very thorough description of the company in, in its best light. And so we spend a lot of time positioning the business. What are the key themes that are going to resonate with buyers? Uh, how do we position the growth strategy? How do we position the industry and the company's place in the industry? And then how do you present the financial story? And so that document can be, you know, 40, 50, 60 pages long. Um, so it's a, it's a serious undertaking to put that together. At the same time, we're developing a target list of buyers to approach. And, and this is very much a collaborative effort with the client and we'll take direction if, if the goal is, hey, we want to maximize price and we're not concerned about confidentiality. We want you to turn over as many stones as you can think of. Then that's where you end up with, with long buyers lists with, you know, it could be 250, 300 folks on it. If, on the other hand, the, the owner is very sensitive to confidentiality, uh, we may develop a much more targeted list, which could be you know, 10, 12, 20 buyers, something like that. Uh, once, once the client has signed off on the, the book and the, the target buyers list, that's when we enter the second phase of the process, which we call the marketing process. And that involves us making direct phone calls to everybody uh, on the approved list, describing the deal, selling the opportunity, negotiating a non-disclosure agreement, and then once that non-disclosure agreement is signed, sending out the book to the interested parties. Um, we then act as the, the first line of defense, answering questions that the buyers have. After about a month's time, we'll solicit first round bids, which are also called initial indications of interest, and really try to catalyze feedback on or around the same day. And, and that's where we can then sit down with our client, walk through the universe of interested parties, and give them our color. It's it's not as easy as just drawing a line under the you know the six or seven highest valuations. It's really walking through each party, how we know them, how we've seen them behave in past processes, and really making the optimal decisions around who to invite in to spend time with the management team. That then moves into the, the next step of the marketing process, which is management presentations. That's where the 
interested parties come meet with the management team and, and go through a, a four or five hour presentation. Uh, we obviously work with the management team to develop that presentation. It's effectively the same themes you see in the book with, with potentially additional disclosure. Um, coming out of those meetings, we'll invite folks into the data room, answer any further diligence questions, and then solicit letters of intent or LOIs. Those those documents are uh, a lot of work goes into those. So they can be eight, 10, 12 pages. The the interested buyer has invested considerable time and resources in preparing that LOI, getting approvals internally, talking to financing sources, et cetera. Uh, we will then work through those with our client, uh, develop a negotiating strategy work to, to negotiate and optimize the deal with the preferred party, and then ultimately sign a letter of intent. And, and once that letter of intent is signed, we enter the third phase of the process, which is really the, the closing phase. And that is all the, uh, the confirmatory due diligence where the buyer will bring in third-party service providers to look at the financials, uh, look at all the, the internal uh, systems of the company, they'll bring their lawyers in, they'll bring in HR specialists, and work through any remaining due diligence items, negotiate the final purchase agreement, and get to close. And, and all told, you know, we tell our clients they should expect a, a six to eight month process from beginning to end. And throughout that whole time, you're there holding their hand through this process. We are, for better or for worse. We're holding their hand and we're, uh, uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as their arms and legs through the process to enable them to stay focused on their business while we try to carry the water as best we can through the process. Yeah, wor worst case scenario is they take their eye off the ball and they miss a quarter, you know, their quarterly numbers because they're working on diligence or working on setting up, you know, all this other information. And, and that, that can just torpedo them. I think in, that just – I think setting up your your description of the book and getting all that is just worth its weight in gold. I can imagine that you know the that kind of these services there's a, there's a price to it just as there is with anything. Uh, what would you say to somebody when they say, "Well, this is a significant cost"? I for a lot of us professionals out there, we look at this as whatever dollar you put in an expense on these services, you're going to get this much more of a return, either in you know financially or in just uh, quality of life. And you know, speak to that that side on you know what's the difference by bringing an investment banker in, a pro that knows what they're doing, uh, that can walk you through all this, you know, in terms of cost, both you know financial or like I said, uh, quality of life. Yeah, you know, it's a great question and we do get that question uh on almost every on almost every deal and we actually track this over time and and our experience has been that you know, we will deliver excess value on average 10x what our fee is over what would be kind of your baseline expected price. And so maybe that means we're not charging enough, but there's certainly a, a tremendous amount of value uh, to be gained in, in bringing in an advisor. And, uh, you know, a big part of that, it's hard to quantify, and you touched on it, but just the, the quality of life impact and 
the impact on the management team to try to do it on their own, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, so you could see, you know, if they try to do that, how the, the, the business would suffer, which ultimately would would uh, negatively impact the valuation. So, uh, you know, the, the 10x number is off of kind of a baseline, but it may even be more significant than that when you think of the potential downside. Yeah, I, I, I keep I keep you know, thinking, leaning over to the quality of life, because as a lot of these owners and founders, I mean, we do have millennials listening in, and they've poured their lives in for a venture for a year or two, and I'm sure they're as interested too, but you've got people that have been in with the company for 40, 50 years. You know, they want out, and they don't want to shoulder all that extra burden, and they appreciate, particularly the folks that are the owners and founders today, when you're north of your 40s, 50s, 60s, you appreciate when somebody else can take things off of your plate. So I think that that, that has, you know, some great intrinsic value there. No doubt. But no doubt. What, would, what would you say, you know, what's the difference where, you know, what makes some owners completely, completely successful when they go through this process where they get their numbers, they get what they want, and others struggle? What's the one thing out there that separates the, the, the successful from the unsuccessful for owners and founders trying to sell? You know, the number one thing I would say is be prepared, and and it's the old Boy Scout axiom, but but be prepared, do the diligence up front, hire an advisor, do the process right, and be thoughtful with the numbers that you prepare and you put out in the in the book. the The number one uh, destroyer of value through the process is missing your numbers. And so that often is the the cause of busted deals when a company underperforms or underdelivers, the valuation comes down, the seller doesn't want to sell anymore, and the deal dies. And and that often is, you know, after six or eight months of hard work. Mm. So being prepared, being thoughtful, identifying the potential issues before you go to market, that's that's probably the best advice I could give. Okay. Well, I the um... I would just imagine there are a number of founders out there that are looking and they're looking at the back nine of their career where there's a change coming. It's not imminent, but they can see that they're, you know, they don't want to die at their post uh, at the office or at the factory anymore, but they, they don't want to get out yet. Um, what's the number one piece of advice you could give those folks that maybe not wanting to do something today, but down the road? And I, in addition to be prepared, I, I would also think it's thinking long and hard because it, this isn't an emotional decision. Yeah, no, it really is. And often families are involved and uh, you, know, you really want to be thoughtful. And you don't want to initiate a process until you're really ready because it does take a tremendous amount of time and energy. And the last thing you want to do is is get to the closing table and realize part of the family's not on board, right? So, so again, I think it's it's starting those conversations early, and I'd encourage founders to you know meet with a banker, uh, have the conversation, get educated on what a process might look like, um, and be open to you know conversations and and inbound interest that you may get over time, and kind of keep a log of those. Uh, it's always helpful to know who are the parties that have reached out. So keep a log of people that have reached out with interest over time and. When you are ready, you can pull that out and you can sit down with your banker and, and kind of talk through it. So uh, we're, we, we are always happy to have an initial conversation, even if a transaction might might be, you know, one, two, three years out. We are always happy to have that conversation. You, you find that a lot where, you know, bridges aren't burned, but if uh, a solicitation is made and somebody's not ready yet, 
they'll be ready in a year or two, and it's amazing how that original interest party circles back. That happens a lot, yeah, I can imagine. Th- there's no doubt. There's no doubt. And, you know, a lot of these private equity guys who pay folks to make cold calls and reach out to companies, I mean, their their sell cycle can take several years. So that is not going to be surprising to anybody. Okay. Now, is is there anything we haven't covered? You know, I, uh, you have look, a great question that, that I forgot to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> I I think the, you know, the one question is, uh, you know, what type of firm do I hire? Who should I hire? And I think it's really finding the right bank, the right firm that fits with your transaction. And I mean fit in terms of sector and size. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have heard of Goldman Sachs, and I've heard cases where they'll pick up a phone and cold call their local Goldman Sachs office. But you know what, Goldman Sachs, unless you've got a, a half billion dollar company, they're probably not the right bank to represent you. And and they may not even bother calling you back. So it's really finding a firm where your transaction will be an important transaction for that partner. And you would know, you consider you know, I'm sorry, would you consider MHT partner, would you consider you guys uh a boutique type firm? Yeah, I we are a national boutique, but we are certainly a boutique and uh you know we 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 do not have an extreme amount of overhead. We are very lean and mean. So, you know, we can work profitably on transactions that just frankly don't work for the big banks, um, certainly not for the money center banks or the bulge bracket. So I think it is finding the firm that, you know, their average size deal lines up well with your deal. You never want to be the smallest deal at an investment bank because you're oh, just going to no. get the attention. Yeah. No, so. you 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 think you're all set with your forty million dollar deal, and you think you got a great thing, and somebody says, "Well, that's okay. We got about uh, eight uh, nine hundred million dollar deals on my desk. Let me get to you later." That's tough. As a matter of fact, I, I, we just saw an issue that's very good for MHT Partners. A little factoid out there, and that uh, Thomson Reuters projection for 2018 M and A. The number one criteria for uh, sellers choosing an investment bank is specialization, experience, or knowledge in their particular industry. So boutique is good. Capabilities with a boutique. Boutique doesn't mean small. It means focused. And I think you guys are very, very well uh, established in that. So that's that's a, a reason that you know there are many many more of these lower middle market companies out there that are going to start transitioning the the larger ones are going to get uh, bought by corporate development likely but i think that you're in the catbird speed at least for the next uh few years with the uh baby boomers going and aging out and so forth so uh the uh the the future looks quite good for for you and MHT so the more people that know about you that haven't even begun thinking about you uh, I think is the better. Uh, Pat, you know, for folks that are in this position or thinking a couple of years out uh, that they may need need some help, uh, where can they find you? You know, best way to find us is, is online. Um, our website is www.mhtpartners.com, and uh, all of our contact information is on there and our uh, industry focus and whatnot, uh, as well as some representative transactions. So I'd encourage folks to go there and then feel free to give me a call, shoot me an email, and we can go from there. Well, great. Thank you very much, Mr. Patrick Crocker of MHT, and we'll talk again. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time.